the the Italian invasion of Abyssinia in 1935 was the breakdown of the League of Nations. When Italy, in the middle of the depression, attempted to attack Ethiopia, control Ethiopia, and the Italian fascist invasion of what was then called Abyssinia, gave the green light to other fascist forces, the Manchurian forces of the Japanese against the Chinese, the Spanish fascists, and the German fascists. The World War II started in 1935, and I think what most historians fail to acknowledge is the impact of that war on Africa. And so they think World War II is a war because the explosion of the war after the German invasion of Czechoslovakia and Poland was the basis for the war. And so when young people on the left think about war, they do not think about global consequences of, say, the NATO intervention in Libya. Now, uh, the, I said in the book that the NATO intervention in Libya is to do a number of things. The most important was to save the euro. And the French president, Sarkozy, was explicit that they were there to save the euro. But there was no unity among the European countries. So the British, the French, wanted to control Libya and Africa to save the euro. That's number one. Number two, they are competing with the United States of America because the biggest threat to the euro is the United States of America. And so, in fact, the war that is going on in Ukraine has very, very important ramifications for the future of the dollar. And the third is the supply line that Africa provides in relationship to raw materials, energy resources, food, and especially water. The Africa is the swing producer for the 21st century, insofar it has clean water more than any other place in the world. And in this sense, the lack of industrialization in Africa is an asset. So the wars that we saw in Syria, in Iraq, against the people of Iran, they were all um, um, they were all part of NATO's attempt to control the global economic space, control finance capital, that is the nature of the United States financial services and banking industry, and to be able to bully other countries such as 
China or Iran or Russia, or in my view, the most important country for the United States to bully is the Germans. Because when one is thinking about currency, the, Euro, the, the, the ruble or the Chinese currency, RMB, they are not threats to the US dollar. The euro is a potential threat. And in my view, this is the objective of NATO to continue to control the Europeans to ensure that United States finance is dominant. And I'm curious when you talk about the term global NATO, what do you perceive as, as that global NATO? So for example, I think, and I was looking briefly at your article on Counterpunch, you were talking and talking about Vijay Prashad's notion of it as a protecting the Atlantic project, this like Eurocentric body. And yet at the mm -hmm. same time, it's it's been growing in potentially coming into contact with countries like Australia, New Zealand, and Japan as kind of this expansion of the, the NATO project into East Asia. So how do you view global NATO as, as expanding? The global NATO, as it, I, and as I said, my mind has been so much on the Ukrainian question that I have um, not um, been um, prepared for a, a, a discussion of this. So the global NATO, as we understand it, is number one, the expansion of the core European and North American countries to the 30 countries that are now in NATO to protect not Europe, but the US dollar and the dominance of US financial markets. The second axis of global NATO is what they call the Mediterranean dialogue. The Mediterranean dialogue involves Egypt, Israel, and those countries in the Mediterranean region. And Libya refused to support the Mediterranean dialogue, which was an expansion of NATO in this region. The third axis of this um, global NATO well, would, in, would involve alliances with Turkey. Now, this is now a problem for NATO. The fourth axis of global NATO is in Asia with what they call the Quad, with Japan, Australia, and now India, Australia, and the United States of America. Now, this global NATO has been presented as an instrument to promote peace and democracy. But we can see that in number of states that where NATO has an objective alliance, I can mention four states. I can Saudi Arabia, I can mention Turkey, I I I I I I, I, can, I can I can mention Israel, and I can mention the 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 Indian government. These are not paragons of democracy. Now the weakest link of global NATO is in Latin America because the Cuban revolution and the 
anti-imperialist organization in Latin America has weakened the U.S. Southern Command so that we have, with the Cuban Revolution as an anchor of anti-imperialist mobilization and opposition to U.S. imperialist domination, we have in the past five to ten years the proliferation of new forces who do not want to be part of the U.S. imperial project. We have the Venezuelan opening. We had the elections in Peru, elections in Honduras, the elections in Chile, which is probably the most significant, and Argentina. Now, in this year, we will have possible change of government in Brazil that will further weaken. So the United States is desperate to be able to advance its program. And so the governments of China and Russia, the governments of China, Russia, and Iran are three countries that have been holding the line against the U.S. financial hegemony. And that they have to break. And so they want to break it in Russia. And so we have this situation, which I am doing of the escalating war, which is comparable to the phase of the World War II. So what we've seen in Ukraine is a new phase of the war. If we see the war in Libya as the first phase, as we saw the Ethiopian invasion of the forces, this war in Ukraine is going to have vast consequences for the entire planet. And this, this is a foolish intervention. And when you do something foolish, you will always expand on it. It has its own iterative consequences. So on the, on the subject of the intervention and the crisis right now, first, I guess, your your initial reaction, your thoughts on what happens next, what does NATO do, what is the response? And then as you were talking about, um, you mentioned Cuba and Venezuela, and Nicaragua is another one to add in of these countries that are close with Russia, that the U.S. has already said they're designing sanctions to try and cripple those countries too with its reaction to, to Russia and their closeness with Russia. So already there's that opportunity for expansion into a global conflict. Well, 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 the first point of the war, which I did not mention with NATO, the first point of the war is to cripple the United States citizens. <laughs> that, that is the number one axis of the war, that the citizens of the United States must be mobilized, organized, and pacified to support this military project. And so the ruling elements in the United States were quite taken back by 20 million people on the streets two years ago. And so the most important aspect of what NATO is doing right now, even bigger than what is going on in Ukraine, is psychological war 
warfare, information warfare, and destabilization of the U.S. citizens. Because the citizens of the United States of America do not benefit from warfare. And the citizens of the United States of America are made accomplices in projects such as the $6 trillion that they spent on Afghanistan, the $3 trillion they spent in Iraq, and the billions that they spent to exploit and dominate Africa. So this is the core of the war against the citizens of the United States of America. So when they have someone like Putin that gives them the opportunity to enlarge their project of psychological warfare and disinformation against their citizens, they grab onto it. And Putin has given them a wonderful opportunity. Yeah, and, and I, I think that's very fascinating. Do you mind going more into exactly what that entails and how Similarly, we're seeing already the escalation of rhetoric against those countries I mentioned, so Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and other, and, and also like, you know, to also think of the African context, the French escalation of rhetoric against, yeah. as you were just talking about Mali. I, I, I will recoil from adding Nicaragua into those countries, such as Honduras, that is trying to move in a new direction, or Peru because we have had the government of Nicaragua for a number of years and the political leadership does not seem to have learned any lessons about how to strengthen their capabilities among the people. So they're, they're, they're giving fodder to the right-wing campaign against Cuba and against Venezuela and against elements such as Chile. I'm writing an article right now to say that the Russians believe they have superior hypersonic weapons to the United States of America, and they want to test these weapons, and that Russians feel that the enlargement of NATO on their doorsteps represented an existential threat to their security and that the threat to Russia are also linked up to Russia's energy resources because Russia provides 40% of the energy of Western Europe. And as long as Russia provides 40% of the energy to Western Europe, their is the possibility in the future that the Russian and the Europeans index their trade in energy resources in the euro and not in the dollar. And that is a major threat to the United States of America. So in the case of Ukraine, those of us on the left should be calling for the withdrawal of the Russians from Ukraine and for negotiations about demilitarizing those countries that have been drawn into NATO since 1991. Absolutely. I think that is a good summary of what the position of, of 
the left should be on the crisis. But I, I'm interested in what you think will happen. What do you think in terms of making predictions? It's hard to predict, but what do you think NATO will do? We already saw the response force be activated. So I'm curious what your prediction is. Well, well, look happen. at that. Look at that. Look at look at that. You shouldn't just uh, you should not just bypass that. Look at the response force activation. I think it's only three times or so in the 70 years of NATO that they activated this response force. In other words, they have gamed this out for a major war with Russia. So it can and this is a danger. As I'm writing in this article, I'm saying that there can be no predictions about this kind of war. We can we can make one clear statement about the war up until today, Sunday, the fourth day, that the Russian general staff attempted to carry out a war against the people of Ukraine using Nazi tactics, that is lightning speed attack, without the backup resources for this kind of attack. And once they made that error, they're going to make bigger errors in terms of this war because Russia has these hypersonic weapons and they want to test them against the, the NATO forces. This is my thesis of what is going on there. And there's no way to contain it. It will be like World War I. The question is, will we be prepared for the long-term consequences of this war as Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht did in Germany? And so are we, re, re, are we reacting to day-to-day -day events or do we understand the balance of forces, which includes supporting the African peoples for demilitarizing West Africa, removing French troops from Africa, and in the United States, how Russia is aligned with the most neo-fascist forces and racist forces in the United States. Are we understanding how the racist forces in the United States are part of global NATO? Absolutely. I think that was a very relevant point to talk about. Um, and especially as you were talking about what is a uh, a pan-Africanist or an Africanist approach to the conflict. I, th I think that's been something people have been discussing. What is the, the role of Africa? Starting with, as you talked about, going back to the invasion of Ethiopia by the Italians. And then if you don't mind talking briefly about how the intervention in Libya served as a similar invasion to kind of kick off this next phase of of global NATO and how that relates to today, how NATO is still in, in Libya and now getting more involved in West Africa. The African project for peace, reconstruction, unity. These projects have been the projects of self-determination. This project of self-determination in Africa had been opposed, is opposed, and the most explicit examples are three. Number one, the destruction of the self-determination project in the Congo, the killing of Patrice Lumumba, and the continued um, rape of Congo's resources 
and keeping the Congolese people hostage. Number two, apartheid, supporting the apartheid state to destroy self-determination projects. And number three, to ensure that the African unification project, any attempt at regional cooperation in Africa for independent economic activity, that those um, are, are projects are thwarted. So France and the Europeans had been relegated that task by the United States during the Cold War. But since the fall of South Africa as the linchpin of US military destruction in Africa and the military defeat of the South Africans at Kutukunavale, the United States established something called the United States Africa Command. And the United States Africa Command has a tenuous relationship with the Europeans, and they manipulate and use the United Nations to fight what is this so-called war and terror. There can be no war and terror because terror is a tactic. If you are to fight this terror tactic, you really would need to, to be de, de, delimiting the links between United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. These would be the places you go to fight the war on terror in Africa. So there, there is an African component of the global struggle, which is, in my view, the front line. And this is what is missed in the left. And in this sense, Russia is not an ally of the African self-determination project, because Russia, in the case of Libya, is an ally of France and the West to ensure that the self-determination project in Africa does not reach a point that Africa is independent. So th that is the African front of the self-determination project. The other important front that people are not paying attention to is the front in Asia. The United States and the media has drawn attention to the rise of China. But politically and intellectually, the Chinese transformation is not as profound as the transformation of the countries of the ASEAN countries that have now created the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is now the largest trading bloc in the world. And that trading bloc, the RCEP, they want to get out of the dollar. So th there's the African front, there's the Latin American front, and there's the Asian front, which leaves two fronts, the North American front of the North American people and the European front. In the case of the European front of this war, there's a division between the Europeans and their project and the Americans, because the Americans occupy Europe in order to strengthen the dollar. Because the United States claim that the dollar is backed by United States financial markets and the United the strength of the United States economy. They do not add that 
it is also because of the weaponization of finance based on the strength of the U.S. military. So this war in Ukraine is a test of that. And you asked me what the Pan-African position should be. And I've been saying to people, what lessons did we learn from World War II? In World War II, of course, the African people opposed fascism. They opposed Hitler. But that did not make them allies of the French colonialists in Africa or the American racists who were oppressing the... So the Africans had a position against war on all fronts, including the racial war and the colonial wars. So an African position is, yes, they must oppose NATO's expansion in Ukraine, and in, but you must also expose and oppose the, the, the French and NATO occupation of Africa and the colonial project of France in the Indian Ocean, especially in Mayotte, and creating a problem in Mozambique at the present moment. Well, I think that was a, uh, an incredible way of summarizing it. Um, but I'm interested more in also the, what you mentioned the, of the dollar hegemony and how NATO operates as a, uh, you know, obviously a military project, but also as a uh, military financial project, the financialization and the way it uses the dollar and sanctions and other, other tools such as the IMF and the World Bank of the global capitalist kind of regime over these countries in order to maintain hegemony of the dollar, if you don't mind talking about that as well. Okay. In, in, in 1944, well, let's go back to World War One because World War One was fought when the British pound was in crisis and there was a need for a transition from the British pound as a dominant currency to a new international currency. Of course, the British pound, as you know, was based not only on the British economy, but on the global reach of the British colonial project, which included major colonies, such as their whole over parts of Hong Kong, the whole over India, the whole over Africa, and Caribbean territories. World War I saw the end of Britain as a major economic power. And for 30 years, the British currency wavered for 30 years until 1944, when the Bretton Woods institutions were established. And the agreement at the Bretton Woods institution was the dollar would become the currency of international trade. They would set up two institutions, one, the International Monetary Fund, and this would be the global arbitrator for international finance and trade. And the second institution was called the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, which is called the World Bank. 
which would be there for the reconstruction of Europe and the reconstruction of capitalism in Europe. At the agreement in 1944 in Bretton Woods, it was agreed by the countries that met there that the United States would be the reserve currency and to maintain that position, the United States would hold gold reserves and for and for every $35, the United States would have one ounce of gold. Now that had tremendous implications for Africa. In the case of South Africa, it meant supporting the apartheid state so that the African workers could not increase their wage. So the, the Bretton Woods system was always predicated on the oppression of Africans because the gold reserves was predicated on gold that was being mined in South Africa. And that's something people do not, do not understand about the Bretton Woods. By 1971, the United States could not maintain this gold dollar equilibrium. And so Nixon, in August of 1971, decoupled the dollar from gold. Since 1971, the dollar has been backed by the United States military. <laughs> And the United States military back the United States financial markets. Now, this was tenable in the Cold War because in the Plaza Accords of 1985, the Reagan administration said to the said to the Germans and said to the Japanese when they complained that, well, we have troops to defend you from the Russians. So keep quiet about this. But at the end of the, the Warsaw Pact countries gave the Europeans the opening for the most important thing that they did was to unify Germany in opposition to the French and the British. Of course, the Americans believed they could continue to manipulate the Germans. But the unification of Germany and the creation of the euro presented a direct challenge to the dollar. Now, the other important development is that the Chinese economy in the past 30 years has been transformed to the point where China is a major industrial and economic power. And aside from China, we have these countries in Asia, Malaysia, Vietnam, Indonesia, Thailand, the Philippines, the 10 countries of the ASEAN countries, they have also transformed themselves in that region to the point that a country such as Vietnam, that was destroyed by the United States of America, has transformed itself to the point that it is among the top 20 trading partners of the United States. It is one of the most spectacular transformations in the world. And I think Vietnam was being bullied by Trump. And they themselves want to get out of the dollar orbit 
So I think to think that it's only the Russians or the Vietnamese or the Cubans or the Iranians is to misunderstand the opposition of the world to US financial capital. And this opposition to US finance capital, you write in the Cancer Punch article, you, you talk about some of the different models of uh, trade exchanges that have been developing. There's been a lot of conversation about SWIFT as it, the banking system and the US kind of threat to put Russia out of SWIFT. But you talk about the, the INSTEX, the instrument in support of trade exchanges used for trade with Iran by European countries, and then the cross-border interbank payment system by China. Can you talk more about the role of these three different models and, and how they're playing roles in opposing or affirming US dollar hegemony? What were the three? Instex, cross-border, and what is the other? And, and SWIFT as well, if you don't mind explaining more about that. Yeah, you should have asked me to prepare for this. Um, let me My tell problem, you what's... Yeah. No, just, just, no, this is, this is good. The Society, Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications, SWIFT, Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications. This is a system that enables financial institutions to send and receive information about financial transactions for over 11,000 financial institutions in 200 countries. But SWIFT is based on the U.S. dollar dominance. And in fact, the Germans wanted to get out of SWIFT because the cause of the weaponization of finance, starting with Obama and carried forward by Trump, the, and the weaponization of finance is actually the biggest weapon in the United States arsenal. Countries have been seeking to get out of SWIFT. So the, 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 the people in Asia, for example, that suffered from the Asian financial crisis, they've created instruments for cross-border payments and bilateral swaps. That they've done that because they want to get out of. The Chinese want to lessen the amount of reserves they have in the dollar because of U.S. sanctions. And then the Europeans want to get out of SWIFT. They want to set up an international payment system linked to the European Central Bank. And they would want to ensure that the United States cannot sanction them if they trade with Iran, for example. So instead was set up in order for the Europeans to continue to trade with Iran. And now that is a threat to the United States because if the Europeans were successful in doing this, then they could be successful in setting up such uh, a special purpose vehicle with the, with, with the Russians also and with the Chinese. So this is very dangerous to the U.S. dollar because it means that the United States could not, as they have done in the past 11 years, 
print money. They print 23 trillion or more. All of the, the, the stimulus packages in the United States of America come from the fact that the United States can print dollars without accounting to anyone. And the citizens of the United States are not aware of this. And what do you think will happen with the, so the U.S. has already promised to have Germany, it, it, it got Germany and Italy basically to sign on and agree to exclude Russia from SWIFT. So, uh, but, 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 but this agreement cannot last very long because of the extent of the trade and energy requirements of the Russians and the Italians on Russian on Russian oil and gas. The United States was always against Nord Stream because they knew it would the repercussions of this. So th th this this is going to be very, very bad. And they my fear is this will as it has done will strengthen nationalism and patriotism in the United States as in Russia and will strengthen the right wing in the United States. I was about to make the point that in World War II, I don't know if I made this point already, but at the expense of re 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 repeating myself, I want to say that in World War II, the progressive African forces oppose fascism in Germany. They also oppose colonialism and racism in the United States and France and Britain. I think that should be clear, that the Pan-African project of peace and self-determination should take priority over Russia or the United States of America. And in terms of in terms of the movement here in the United States and globally, so thinking about what can be done by the left in the US and across the African continent and across the global south in general, what steps should be taken to oppose further NATO expansion, to oppose further NATO financial warfare? further disinformation warfare as you've been talking about, how, how do we start mobilizing a left to oppose this global NATO that you've been talking about? Well, I think the positive outcome of all of this has been the residual strength of the West, the left in the United States of America. The residual strength of the left was made manifest by the Black Lives Matter movement. And the Black Lives Matter movement was able to mobilize an intergenerational and, and uh, intersectional struggle, which shocked the capitalist forces. And this is what must be built upon. I think that is a foundation of any movement in the United States of America. The tragedy of the left in the United States of America is that the historic left did not understand racial capitalism. And by not understanding racial capitalism, they do not understand that there's only one form of capitalism, that is a racist capitalist system that was built on genocide and enslavement. And the, you not be in the United States of America without acknowledging the genocide against the First Nation people. So all these shibboleths about democracy and expanding democracy, the left want a democratic project that is grounded in a recognition of genocide 
and slavery. That means reparations and reparative ideas must be at the forefront of a left project. Secondly, because Africa is the anchor of all global imperialist projects, whether it is Russia, whether it is Europe, whether it is Asia or the United States, solidarity with African self-determination projects as the anti-apartheid structure is sine qua non for a left project. It means that young people in the United States of America must liberate themselves from the psychological warfare against Africans, which is represented in failed states, bankrupt states, corrupt states, and corrupt leadership, and to be able to build a front of progressive anti-racist, anti-imperialist forces in the United States with the progressive forces in Burkina Faso, in South Africa, roads must fall, trees must fall, science must fall, so that young people in Africa do not see young people in the United States as accomplices to U.S. imperialism. And the anti-racist struggle internationally against racists in Latin America, racists in Europe, in France, we have these racist and fascist dominating them. So the, the left project in the United States is here, but it means that the left must have a sense of itself in terms of a long protracted process to build a movement that can oppose war and imperialism. I, I completely agree with, with everything you said. I think that's a, a vision that we have to start working on now um, to have it. I mean, we, we definitely have had the roots of it, but have to have more continued solidarity with the struggles across the global South to prepare it for the, the task now. Uh, I'm curious just in, in final thoughts, because I don't want to keep you too long, but I would absolutely love to talk to you again soon. And and, and hopefully I, I can send ahead some topics um, so we can is, next how time. Big your, how big is your movement there? So we, we just have a small group of researchers, about about 20 students who are working together, but we're working we on expanding. Have a session down there. We should have a public session down there. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. No, if you ever yeah, want to we come should down have, to... We should, have, we should have a public session down there where we can, we can go. Because by then, by then, in the next three weeks, if this war has not ended in the three weeks, it's going to be a world war. Yeah, and then it will it will definitely be a time you know, to start getting people informed about what exactly NATO is and and what it's doing and what it's already been doing in the global south and and how it's going to impact the that's, global south. Um, right. I'm just yeah, I'm so I'm just curious and just the last thoughts and what is a cause for optimism for you in this moment of of despair? I think what has been a oh, it's not sign of good me. fortune? Uh huh. It, it, it's not it's not despair. Please read the book, because in the book, I did not know how this war would evolve. But in the book, we spelled out that in 1935, the Pan-Africanist forces warned Europe that if you do not stop the Italians, it's going to lead to a world war. I was making that warning in that book, Global NATO. Now, since Global NATO was written, We've had the Black Lives Matter movement, and we have this major force. And then we have the right-wing forces in this country who have organized politically, militarily, 
and the right-wing forces are on the ascendancy and they're occupying spaces in the university and young people are being demobilized the brain hacking and the russians are linked with the right-wing forces so for every one young person who have the clarity that there must be protracted patient organizing that gives me hope so when someone like you comes forward and to see that you want to link what's happening in ukraine to what's happening in in mali and to what's happening in this country this is the kind of analysis and energy we need and for young people to use it and their resources to build multiracial multi-class alliances in this country to change the the, the project of war well thank you so much professor campbell and i i don't want to keep you any longer but i have to say i think we we absolutely should continue the conversation see if you can get continue. a transcript of this because it's helpful for me to to have spoken it out you know so absolutely yeah you, see if you can yeah. get that transcribed quickly Exactly. For sure. I'll send you the transcript right right uh later today. I think I can have it processed and send it to you. Um yeah. and then I think what we can do is if you'd like, we can even have a a Zoom where if you want to talk to the other members of the group instead of just be myself, I think that would also be a great opportunity to have more of a conversation with everybody about this. Uh, we can do that and if COVID abates, we can on there and uh, we, we can send people out to educate them. Absolutely. Yeah. If you, if you come down to Ithaca or we could always come up to Syracuse, that would be great um, to link in person and kind of start. So, I mean, the focus of our group basically is focused on uh, how do we connect the struggle to the struggle in the, in the global South and the. Okay. Well, let's struggle. talk about how we could have a meeting. Let's give this thing a, a week or two and we could meet with your group uh, and how, how we could, um, talk about these issues and then they can ask me some questions excellent yeah so i can uh follow up by email if you want and we can and we can start setting yeah, the ground okay. for them okay excellent all right all right thank yeah. you so much professor campbell take care take care bye keep up the good work thanks you too goodbye